Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. Welcome to the last Evidence-Based Radio of 2017. Let us put this year behind us. <laughs> uh, personally, it's actually been kind of a good year for me, but uh, beyond that, it's been quite the year. Uh, let us all hope that 2018 will bring uh, a better, brighter, and more optimistic uh, world to us all. Of course, I'm not particularly uh, <laughs> um, optimistic myself about this, but, you know, it's good to go into the new year with at least some amount of hope. Uh, as always, you can find me throughout the week at uh, my Facebook page, Evidence-Based Radio. Uh, you can also find uh, this and previous episodes of the show on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and on the Evidence-Based Radio website. Um, I'm going to be doing a bit of things we missed throughout the year. I picked out some random stories that I just thought were fun and interesting that sort of weren't important enough earlier in the year to really talk about versus other things that I had talked about. Um, but I also have some stories from uh, recently to start out with. So I wanted to start out the evening with a weird discovery uh, because I want this to be a uh, fairly lighthearted show. Uh, I think that 2017 is definitely owed to be put out there as uh, something that we would best forget the bad parts of and would like to preferably uh, remember the quirky and fun parts. So let's talk about a weird worm to start off the evening. Okay, so this new marine worm is known as Xenoturbella japonica. And it was recently found at the bottom of the Western Pacific Ocean. Now, what's interesting about this worm is that, uh, as revealed by a team of researchers from the University of uh, Tsukuba in Japan, it actually lacks many features of complex animals, including a centralized nervous system, kidneys, and an anus. <laughs> the animal does, however, they realized, has it does have a mouth opening. So they believe it must have some sort of digest, circular digestive tract uh, where the one opening serves both as mouth and anus. Uh, and there are definitely other animals out there that have that uh, peculiar, though not necessarily uh, very fun sounding digestive system. So Xenoturbella has actually a rather controversial um, place in the classification of uh, animals, but it's generally considered either a basal member or a sister group to the bilat bilateria. Um, and of course, you know, I have talked over the years uh, about the weird and wonderful world of taxonomy. And uh, that is a story that we could talk more about another day with weird uh, animals being put in different places. And sometimes they've been put in one place and then they do uh, DNA testing and they realize, whoops, they're supposed to be in a completely different place uh, in the taxonomic uh, hierarchy of animals. Um, so anyways, that's again, a totally different topic for a different day. And so uh, the bilateria are actually the group 
that includes more complex animals. So basically um, animals with bilateral symmetry. And so uh, the researchers looked at two specimens, a female, which is about five centimeters in length. So either, these are very small little guys and a juvenile that was only about one centimeter in length. The worms are pale yellow in color with an oval-shaped mouth and a glandular network along the ventral or bottom surface of the body. And so they used both micro-CT scanning and DNA extraction uh, in order to determine that this was indeed a new species of Xenoturbella. And they were also able to discover, uh, they hadn't at first been able to see, obviously, because they're very small, that frontal pore, uh, the frontal sort of mouth, quote-unquote. And so the DNA had traces of several species of bivalve, which indicates that the worms are most likely consuming marine bivalves for their diet. Species within this genus have previously been divided into shallow and deep subgroups. And our results place X. japonica in the shallow subgroup, lead author Hiroyaki Nakano says. Interestingly, X. japonica shares features with both subgroups, however. Thus, feature the features of this species may be ancestral for this genus, and this new species may be particularly important for unraveling the ancestry of Xenoturbella and the early history of the Bilateria. So, tiny little worm might be pretty important to figuring out some of this deep history of uh, animal species. And so it turns out that most species of Xenoturbella actually live in deep waters, thousands of feet below the surface. So they've actually been pretty hard to study. Uh, but it turns out that this one isn't so much. Uh, as co-author Hisanori Kotsuku uh, Kotsuka, sorry, explains, because one habitat where X. japonica was found is easily accessible from a marine station, this new species promises to be valuable for future research on bilateritarian and deuterostome evolution. So again, tiny weird little worm, but it might have a big uh, place in figuring out some of these weird taxonomical uh, problems that are still there and also just figuring out sort of how things have evolved from other things. And so, yeah, very cool. And so next I wanted to talk about the uh, results from something that happened a while back, but uh, they're just talking about, you know, the papers take time to be uh, published. And so this is a paper about the phenomena that was observed earlier this year during the total solar eclipse uh, that was visible across much of the U.S., though sadly not here in New England. And so it turns out that the path of this eclipse allowed researchers to confirm the existence of theoretically uh, of bow waves, which had been um, theoretical up until this point. And so uh, these bow waves were created in the atmosphere by the eclipse. And so researchers from MIT's Haystack Observatory and the University of Tromsø in Norway were able to show the, quote, first unambiguous evidence of these weak waves first posited to exist in the 1970s. So this is just a weird little theory, um, which turned out to be true, but it just... Um, 
the theory was that the eclipse would create pockets of high pressure air under the moon's shadow. And so that so what would happen is that this high pressure would plow through low pressure air as the shadow moved across the planet. And so these pockets of high pressure would then generate small but detectable bow waves like those generated by a ship as its bow cuts through the water. And so the team used data from around 2,000 satellite receivers placed throughout the North American continent. And according to lead author Shunrong Zhang of MIT, this was the first time that satellites were able to capture amazing details of the ionospheric bow waves, uh, despite the effects of eclipses on the upper atmosphere having previously been studied, they hadn't ever actually been able to get this sort of detailed uh, confirmation of these bow waves. And so the, the waves were actually detected in the Earth's ionosphere, which is a region of charged particles that begins around 37 miles above the planet's surface. Uh, Zhang noted that the result indicates that only certain types of ionospheric waves are associated with the eclipse, and that to quantitatively understand our observations, more sophisticated modeling work is highly needed. Uh, and uh, Zhang also notes that the waves are too faint to have any effect on the ionosphere, uh, so it wouldn't affect the ability of the zone, for instance, to reflect radio waves, uh, nor was the effect powerful enough to have any um, effect on the electrical grid. Instead, the author writes that the work reveals complex interconnections between the sun, moon, and Earth's neutral atmosphere and ionosphere. And so, of course, this is still an active research place uh, for planetary scientists. We still have a lot of things that we don't quite understand about how the atmosphere works and how it interacts with uh, different things in the universe. For instance, I talked about uh, just recently that they found out something that was going on in the um, Van Allen belt. And so, you know, there's still a lot of active research going on about especially the upper reaches of the atmosphere and what's happening there. And so every time we learn something new, that helps us understand other things that are going on. Now, uh, unfortunately, we did miss this eclipse, but it turns out uh, that we will get a chance, potentially, uh, to see an eclipse in just a few years. In April of 2024, another eclipse will sweep from Texas to New England, and hopefully uh, it will come at the right time for us to be able to see it. And, you know, there won't be cloud cover and uh, things like that. Uh, for instance, you know, this year, this time around, even the partial eclipse was kind of obscured by a lot of clouds, uh, though I did still get out there with some glasses and did uh, see some pretty cool um, effects despite the cloud cover. Okay, let's move on now to talk about a fan favorite topic here at uh evidence-based radio, which is cephalopods. Um, and so more precisely, let's talk about octopus. So it's being reported that the giant Pacific octopus, or the GPO, is in fact not one, but actually two distinct species. The GPO is the largest octopus known and has a range that extends from California to Alaska and across the Pacific to Japan. 
The new species has been dubbed the frilled giant octopus. For researchers, this isn't a total surprise. They've suspected that the GPO might be an umbrella term for more than one species for some time, but it wasn't until now that we had actual proof. The first real evidence came in 2012 when researchers from Alaska Pacific University and the U.S. Geological Survey sampled a specimen found in Prince William Sound. Genetic testings of the sample taken from a small snip of arm tissue indicated that this was a genetically distinct population. Unfortunately for the scientists, but not for this particular octopus, uh, they had released the animal after taking the sample. Without a full specimen, the researchers were unable to tell if the new species was visually distinctive or a more cryptic species, which can only be distinguished by genetics. So in order to find out more about these animals, Nathan Hollenbeck, an undergrad at Alaska Pacific University, decided to make the animals the subject of his senior thesis. He examined shrimp fishing bycatch, a place where octopus are often unfortunately found, to find specimens. It turns out that shrimp fishermen place baited pots in the water, and these can be left there for up to a day. Usually they bring up the pot into which the shrimp have climbed and there's just shrimp in there. However, occasionally an octopus will enter the pot, lured either by the prospect of an easy meal or because they're just curious about the shrimp pot itself. Um, because as we know, octopuses are very uh, curious uh, creatures and they also really like getting into things. Um, they really like small spaces and uh, they're very very curious. Usually the octopuses have eaten the shrimp, Hollenbeck told the website Earther. So there's a lot of shrimp shells and legs and antennae. <laughs> he found that he was rather quickly able to discern that there were two types of octopus being brought up. One was the familiar GPO, and the other featured a distinctive frill along the length of its body, as well as eyelashes of raised skin around the eye, and these particular octopus had two white spots on the front of their head in uh, relation to the familiar GPO's single spot. So to confirm his findings, Hollenbeck took tiny samples from the arms of the octopus, and he actually also took swabs from the octopus's skin to see if future research could be conducted with this non-invasive technique. And so researchers have been trying to conduct non-invasive sampling on uh, mammals and birds, but Hollenbeck was the first to try this technique on an octopus. And excitingly, the method worked, with the DNA samples from both the cotton swab and the arm samples matching. So while arm tissue does grow back on an octopus, it is still better to be able to collect non-invasive samples whenever possible. So that's a very exciting result in and of itself. Hollenbeck and his advisor, David Scheel, published their results in the November issue of the American Malacological Bulletin. Um, and malacological means uh, the study of mollusks. And don't worry, I had to look that up too. <laughs> uh, so she'll notes that presumably people have been catching these octopuses for years and no one just ever noticed. The new species of frilled octopus seems to be less widely distributed than the more familiar GPOs. They have found specimens only between Juneau and the Bering Sea. 
They also seem to prefer deeper water, which is not generally explored by tide poolers or scuba divers. In these more remote habits, the octopus might be more common. During their research, frilled giants made up a third of octopus bycatch recovered from the shrimp pots. The researchers suspect that octopus may also be bycatch in crab and cod pots along the Gulf of Alaska, but there is yet no research on how that might impact the species as it's never been formally known um, prior to this work. So, you know, you don't know what's out there. If you don't know that there's this other species out there, you can't have known how these sorts of fishing uh, expeditions actually impact it. Uh, And in fact, even the more common GPOs are still very much a mystery in many ways. Uh, So in fact, researchers at the Alaskan Fisheries Science Center have recommended a very conservative management quote unquote, due to the poor state of knowledge of the species composition, life history, distribution, and abundance of octopus in the Gulf of Alaska, which pretty much translates to we really don't know much about them at all. (laughs) And so at present, federal regulations specify a maximum octopus bycatch based on the best estimates of the population. The Alaska cod fishery has been closed at least once due to running up against this limit. Uh, And since the new species has not even been given a formal Latin name, uh, though it will almost certainly fall into the genus Enteroctopus, (laughs) that is a very hard word to say. Uh, along with the GPO, it seems unlikely that they will be considered a distinct species by fishermen anytime soon. But for the scientists, this is the beginning of an investigation into just why they are different from their more common cousins. Shiel notes, I've been thinking, why would an octopus have a ledge coming off its body like that? Maybe we're seeing differences in their habitat selection and ecology reflected by differences in their body. He's hoping to compare these new frilled giants with smaller octopus who have a similar frilled body in order to compare their habitats and uh, habits. And of course, as Shul himself notes, if nothing else, we've discovered a new beautiful dweller of the sea. They're so pretty, he told Arthur. (laughs) And in fact, they are. Um, They are gorgeous uh, Uh, giant Pacific octopus and these new frilled ones uh, especially are very beautiful animals. And um, yeah, so they are definitely worth looking at and they are quite, quite pretty animals. Um, And of course, octopuses and all sort of uh, cephalopods are pretty much incredible in every way, shape and form. They're definitely a fan favorite around here. And so uh, let's talk about a good news of sorts uh, story coming from the ocean next. And so this is the, uh, this is a story that says that sea stars in the Pacific, at least in the Southern Pacific, are making a comeback. Now, I think I've actually talked about this in the past, but for the last four years or so, a mysterious disease has been decimating sea stars along the West Coast. Uh, This mysterious wasting disease caused the stars to basically disintegrate into a pile of goo. 
So the Orange County Register reported on Tuesday that the sea stars are showing up in record numbers in Southern California and at other points along the coast. They are coming back big time, Daryl Delisky, an aquarist for the Calibro Marine Aquarium in San Pedro, told the Orange County Register. It's a huge difference. A couple of years ago, you wouldn't find any. I dove all the way as far as Canada, specifically looking for sea stars, and found not a single one. So again, beginning in 2013, the sea stars began to develop uh, this disease where lesions would develop. And soon after that, uh, they would basically just fall apart, leaving only gooey blobs. Um, And it's still unclear what caused the syndrome, though researchers suspect it was probably a virus uh, that spread from coastal Mexico all the way up to uh, the Canadian and even Alaskan coast. Uh, And it killed all of the stars, okra stars, mottled stars, leather stars, sunflowers, rainbows, and six-armed stars, all of them. Um, And so the stars are beginning to bounce back, at least in parts of Southern California again. Um, And in addition, there was a baby boom of sea stars off the coast of Oregon. Now, it turns out this isn't the first time sea stars have suffered losses, but it is the most widespread uh, die-off pretty much that has been seen in this area. Uh, So local die-offs occurred in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, But again, this was a much, much more widespread and much more um, intense die-off. And the news is not all good, unfortunately. Uh, The wasting syndrome is still affecting sea stars in northern and central California, and there are reports that it has returned to the Salish Sea, uh, the area between northern Washington State and southern British Columbia. But hopefully, uh, this is a sign of good things to come. Um, Hopefully, resistance has formed in the populations to the south, and this uh, resistance will either spread to more northern populations or those stars will move north um, into these territories. Uh, So hopefully, that is a good sign that there is going to be some progress there. Okay. So those are my sort of uh, newer stories. And now I wanted to hop back a bit in time through the year uh, to talk about a few stories that we have missed along the way. And so uh, first off, way back in January, a secret storeroom was located beneath what had been the Astoria Theater Building in London. Uh, It was torn down as part of an upgrade scheme for the Cross Rail and London Underground. And so during an excavation at the site, a hidden vault was found that contained hordes of marmalade jars, pots of pots for spiced pickles and bottles for historic ketchup. Excavations at Cross and Blackwell's Soho factory produced a large and diverse collection of pottery and glass related to their production, with one cistern alone containing nearly three tons of Newcastle-made marmalade jars with stoneware bottles and jars. We think this is the biggest collection of pottery ever discovered in a single feature from an archaeological site in London, remarked Nigel Jeffries, a medieval and later pottery specialist from the Museum of London Archaeology and the author of a book on this discovery. Uh, Now, the 
ketchup, for instance, discovered uh, was not the red stuff you get at the local supermarket these days, uh, but rather an earlier iteration called mushroom ketchup, uh, which is apparently more similar to a mild soy sauce. Um, and so it turns out it's, these are just jars. There wasn't anything in them. Um, and uh, so they also found jars for mustard, for preserved ginger, uh, and piccalilli, which is a type of spiced pickle relish adapted from Indian recipes. And one of the things that I'm always shocked that my father, uh, who rarely enjoys anything spiced, eats. <laughs> Um, and so there were also earthenware jars, uh, and some of them had, you know, their labels still intact. Uh, so some were meant for pure orange marmalade, as well as household raspberry jam and plum jam. And so, um, while the site had become a uh, nightclub before it was demolished, it had actually been the site, um, originally of a warehouse owned by, uh, this company called Cross and Blackwell, which was one of the first companies to industrialize jam production and was also a pioneer in British food production. They were actually also one of the first brands to use celebrity chefs and authors for the endorsement and development of their products, including Signor Qualiotti, uh, who was chef to Napoleon and who actually introduced their piccalilli to the market. Um, and again, luckily or unluckily, depending on your perspective, uh, the jars were all empty. Uh, they were most, they were mostly uh, sort of either, I mean, most of them were intact, but some of them were broken and things like that. And they had actually been used as landfill um, in a cistern. And so no one uh, was made to volunteer to eat 200-year-old preserves to see just how well they preserved. Okay, and with that terrible joke, <laughs> uh, I am going to uh, take a break and play some PSAs and some show promos, and we will come back and talk about a, uh, another uh, culinary themed story. So hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. 
To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! You will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. When you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash CET. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique. Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. 
They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio on Valley Free Radio, uh, 103.3 FM in Northampton. Okay, so like I said, we are going to talk about another culinary-themed story, which also uh, was reported back in January. And so uh, the Nightshade family, which includes around 2,500 species, uh, including incredibly important crops like potatoes uh, and also peppers, eggplants, and uh, tomatoes, uh, as well as petunias and uh, tobacco, uh, <laughs> was thought to have diverged from the Morning Glory family somewhere between 49 and 67 million years ago. But this was educated guesswork based on existing samples of ancient plants. However, because these delicate fruits rarely fossilize, uh, archaeologists had really very little to work with beyond a few seeds. However, the discovery of two specimens uh, from the genus Physalia, uh, which includes tomatillos, ground cherries, and husk tomatoes, uh, complete with the delicate husks actually preserved around them. Uh, these are really beautiful um, uh, fossils. And uh, they were discovered in Laguna del Juanco in Patagonia, Argentina. And they are 52 million year old specimens, uh, which show that the nightshade family is much older than previously suspected. And so these two fossils from a cache of more than 6,000 at the site represent the only two fossils known of the entire nightshade family that preserved enough information to be assigned to a genus within the family. And this is from Peter Wilf, uh, lead author of the study that was published in Science. And so the researchers named the specimens Physalia infinimundi, uh, after the fact that they were found at the uh, sort of end of the world uh, in Patagonia. And so previous research had suggested that the genus Physalia uh, was only around 9 to 11 million years old. Um, and this is also considered one of the more recent offshoots of the nightshade family. And so this pushes the origin of the family um, and it's split from the morning glory back millions of years. <laughs> um, and so this is a really interesting um, result. And it is one of those things that gives us more information about this plant genus, which is a very, very important uh, genus, obviously, um, or family, I should say, the uh, family of um, nightshade. And yeah, so that is very cool. Just kind of a quirky story that I thought would be good for sort of end of the year uh, <laughs> chatting about science. And so our next little uh, story is uh, circling back to the kingdom Animalia. Uh, and so this is a story about ants. So back in March, it was reported that wood ants protect their colonies from disease by actually creating a potent 
antibiotic cocktail made from tree resin and poison from their own bodies. Now, we already knew that ants were incredible. And I've personally always said that if aliens really did land on the planet, they'd want to talk to the ants, not to us. Um, And I also uh, once read a story about ants that it was a fiction story, but it was so well written and so uh, well um, researched. I think he actually talked to E.O. Wilson, who was sort of the grandfather of ant research, um, that I was terrified of ants for an entire summer after having read that book. They are expert architects, farmers, soldiers, and explorers, among other traits that we generally uh, tend to assign exclusively to humanity. And so now we can add chemists to the list of jobs they qualify for. And so this finding would also suggest the answer to a important question, uh, which is how do some ant species avoid epidemics? And so would ants live in dense groups with colonies consisting of hundreds of thousands of individuals? And as with humans packed in such dense communities, this should lead to disease being able to spread quickly and efficiently throughout a colony. And this is especially when you consider that their homes are warm, humid, and full of dead insects waiting to be dinner. Now, most ant species avoid spreading germs by grooming each other and obsessively cleaning their colonies. However, it turns out that wood ants take the fight against disease a step further. They actually collect antimicrobial tree resin and bring it back to their nests. And so Michael Chapusiet an evolutionary biologist at the University of Lausanne in uh, Switzerland, studies the ants to see if they were doing even more than that to keep the colony free from disease. And so to investigate exactly what was happening, Chapusat and his colleagues looked at resin that had not been uh, with ants that had just come directly from a tree and also resin that had been allowed to uh, interact and stay with the ants in a colony for two weeks. They took samples of each kind of resin and added it to a Petri dish covered with an ant fungus that is deadly to ants um, and is generally spread by spores grown in the body of the ant. They found that the resin that had been in close proximity to the ants created a 50% larger fungus-free area, according to their paper published in Ecology and Evolution. And then uh, when they tested stones and twigs uh, that that are often found in ant colonies, um, and they took some that were in the colony and some that were not, they found no difference between those. Um, And so there was no difference between the ones that had been with the ants and control items, which, um, you know, was an additional uh, control to see that it was actually the tree resin that was the important uh, part of the equation. And so they suggested that this secret had to be something that was both within the resin and within the ants themselves. So the researchers then analyzed the chemical composition of the resin using a technique called liquid chromatography. And so they found that the resin was actually infused with formic acid. This is a caustic substance produced by several ant species and is used as a weapon, both offensively and defensively, as well as a way to clean their offspring. 
The scientists found that resin dipped in formic acid did better than either fungus alone, um, I'm sorry, either uh, resin alone or glass dipped in acid at killing the fungus. And uh, so they... Chapusiat notes that they exploit the tree and then they combine it with their own poison. Now, this is really pretty impressive. Uh, while other animals are known to defend themselves with substances that they find or create, this appears to be the first example outside of humans of an animal combining two substances to create a unique product for a specific purpose. And in addition, with our antibiotics becoming increasingly at risk, it may be time to look at our ant overlords for new and novel ways to prevent disease. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting. And so um, our last, I think, uh, older story uh, is from September. And this is talking about the oldest example of the symbol that would evolve to become the modern zero. And so this was discovered in a manuscript currently housed in the Bodleian University at the University, uh, sorry, Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford. Now, it may be hard to believe, but there was a time when the concept of zero didn't really exist. Uh, it was something that people had to be taught. The idea that you could have nothing uh, even though it seems very intuitive to us today, uh, was something that was really hard for a lot of ancient people to uh, grasp, and especially how to uh, enumerate that idea of nothing. Um, and so, you know, we think of, of zero and the idea of nothing as well, nothing. <laughs> it's very easy and, um, you know, it's not hard for us to grasp at all, but there was a time uh, someone actually had to create the idea of the zero. Um, and so, for instance, Europeans actually had a really hard time adopting the idea when it came to them from the East. They were really confused. They did not they didn't want to adopt the zero. They were very confused by it. Um, and so it is something that people really had to figure it out. Um, however, mathematicians across the world did develop ways um, to both conceptualize it and to denote this important idea. So for instance, the Sumerians used a double wedge, the Maya used an I, and in India, a simple dot, which eventually developed into the modern zero. So for many years, researchers believed the oldest known example of the dot as a zero was located in a temple in Madhya Pradesh dating from the 9th century. This was supplanted uh, more recently by a bill of sale from Cambodia that was dated from the 7th century. And now it turns out that fragments of the Bakshali manuscript dated from the 3rd or 4th century, which makes this the earliest example of the dot as zero notation. And in fact, there's a lot of them in this particular manuscript. This manuscript was actually originally found in a Pakistani field back in 1881 uh, by some farmhands. Uh, and so this is actually a really interesting document. Um, it apparently contains 
uh, what appeared to be math exercises for use by merchants on the Silk Road. Uh, so basically, it was a cheat sheet to teach you how to do uh, sums and uh, important business calculations that you would need when you were trading um, with different people and um, maybe even had sort of conversion charts. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what it would have had, but... Uh, I just love the idea of sort of this manual for uh, businessmen as they went across the Silk Road trying to figure out how to do these uh, mathematical uh, equations. Just, I don't know, for some reason, the idea of that uh, pleased me. <laughs> uh, so parts of the manuscript are dated to different time periods. Uh, and this is a uh, actually a birch bark. Um, uh, it's made from birch bark, this, this book. And so the oldest part is between 224 and 383, uh, and that's BCE. I'm sorry, that's CE um, in the Common Era. And the latest is between 850 and 993 CE. Uh, and it's important to note that originally the dot, uh, and especially in these older documents, was actually more of a placeholder than a number itself. Again, someone had to invent the idea of zero. And this didn't actually happen until 628 when the Indian mathematician Brahmagupta introduced the idea of zero being a number in its own right. Um, and so then as it began to be more widely adopted, um, the dot began to expand and eventually became the zero that we all know and love today. Um, especially if it's behind another number in our bank account versus all by its lonesome. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really interesting, uh, story because it is just so fascinating to think about the idea that someone had to invent the idea of zero, of using zero, um, and of starting from zero instead of starting from one, um, and for some reason, it also, you know, kind of delights me in a sort of, uh, you know, flipping the, the script kind of way that it was really the, the Europeans who were the most resistant to this idea. <laughs> they really didn't like the idea of zero. They were like, what? That doesn't, what? <laughs> How can you have nothing? You have one or you, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I do kind of love that story. How? If this was something that actually had to be created. Um, and there's so many things that we take for granted today that, you know, you never think someone actually had to come up with that. And of course, this is also another uh, fan favorite theme around here, which is the idea that, you know, our ancestors were not nearly as uh, uneducated and uh, bumbling as they are often portrayed and that, you know, in 628, someone created this revolutionary idea that zero should be a number. Um, and it seems like a small thing, but at the time it was huge. People did not have a concept of it before the Indian mathematicians really got out there and started talking about it. Um, and so like, for instance, the Sumerians, they had that placeholder, but we don't really think they had the concept of zero as a number, more as a placeholder. Um, and um, so, yeah, very, very interesting. 
And I'm not sure about the Maya. I'm not sure if they considered it to be an actual number or if they considered it to be a placeholder, but they're also a little bit later, I believe, in time. Um, I'm forgetting my Mesoamerican uh, timeline, unfortunately, as far as when um, these peoples lived. Because, of course, the other thing, um, just as a complete aside, um, you know, we talk about the Maya, the Inca, and the Aztecs, but there's actually a lot longer history um, of peoples in Central and Southern America. Um, and so we tend to think about them as having been sort of in uh, the CE era that, you know, they they were only there when, for instance, you know, the Spanish got there. Um, and so the Inca were there with the Spanish and the Maya um, and the Aztecs, but there were other older civilizations. Um, for instance, there's a whole thing about the Inca talking about how, oh, you know, we built all of these things. Um, but really, a lot of the stuff that they uh, had was built by other people, but they just said that they had built it because it was a power differential thing. Anyways, that's a complete aside. Um, <laughs> and without having a real timeline in front of me, I don't want to speculate too much about that because I don't want to give you incorrect information. That is always uh, a dangerous thing to do is to start talking about something that you know a little bit about, um, but not enough to actually give complete and accurate information. Uh, so let me not do that tonight. Uh, let me go back to the stories that I have actually uh, researched for the evening. <laughs> um, so I wanted to finish up by looking a little bit towards the future. So let's start talking, uh, start off with talking about materials of the future. Uh, we all know that plastics, for instance, are terrible for the environment. Um, and at some point, we are going to run out of petroleum. Um, but other building materials are also just as bad. And so new plant-based materials uh, have started to be developed. And so in the last few decades, um, especially in the last decade, there's been a lot of work on this. And so one of the newest contenders is wood made from uh, straw or other materials bound by mycelium. And so this is the root-like tendrils that make up the bulk of mushrooms. Um, and so what a lot of people think of as a mushroom, you know, the sort of toadstool or the, uh, you know, woody fungus that you pull off of a tree and some people eat, um, not really my thing, uh, is actually only the fruiting body of the plant. Um, it's the mycelium that's really the mushroom itself. Um, and so right now, I just want to make sure that it's very clear that these aren't viable, uh, you know, materials. They're very much in proof of concept, but I thought they were kind of cool to talk about. Um, and so for instance, uh, currently using edible mushrooms, architect Chris Maurer and his colleagues at Red House Architecture in Cleveland, Ohio, have created slabs of wood-like substance, uh, again, from straw and other materials and uh, this mycelium mushroom. And so their vision would be someday in the future, uh, in a future that may or may not exist, um, to build whole communities from mushroom wood, quote unquote, and its byproducts to provide housing, food security, and even water filtration, especially in regions devastated by climate change and the resultant climate, climate change natural disasters. And so, 
again, this is part of a new generation of biomaterials being developed by mainly architects um, that might prove useful in our future, uh, marked by increasing climate instability and changing weather patterns. Um, so, you know, if you stop having the forest be growing, then you can't use wood. Um, so you need to find something else to use. And um, one of the real sort of end goals for all of these projects is to reduce waste and uh, to build using materials that are less costly to make in terms of energy, enviro environmental impact, and, you know, dollars. Um, and so currently in the U.S. alone, building construction and demolition creates over 500 million tons of waste and accounts for nearly 40% of U.S. energy consumption each year. Building-related activities contribute nearly a fifth of, human, of humanity's total global greenhouse gas emissions, um, which are, of course, a huge problem in climate change. The building industry is responsible for a large amount of environmental footprint that humans undertake, Maurer told uh, the website Earther. And so what Maurer and others refer to as mycoterials, uh, they're basically tempeh taken a step further. Uh, so if you've ever uh, known a vegetarian, if you are a vegetarian, if you've ever sort of looked at the vegetarian section of uh, the supermarket in a uh, in curiosity and or horror, um, depending, um, you might have seen this thing called tempeh. And basically, uh, that is soybean uh, cakes that are held together by mycelium. Um, and uh, so that is basically what the sort of commercial uh, edible product is. And so what you do is you take something like rye grains or um, straw, which can be the, once you have the, remove the grain, then you can use the chaff basically, um, for this. And, uh, they're fused with the mycelium and then, um, that's put into a form and then it's dehydrated and compressed. Um, and so the texture, color, and tensile properties of the material can be altered by altering the raw materials. Um, and this can lead to materials that are versatile, flexible, and strong, and importantly, biodegradable. We can produce materials that are structural, insulating, fire-resistant, and sound-attenuating, Moore notes. Now, for him, this is more than a science project. Uh, he definitely wants to see these materials used to make life better for people. Um, he notes that we've worked in a lot of different environments, and a lot of them were limited resource environments. Having that experience has made us all understand that the, we're almost always in limited resource environments. We propose materials that come from nature, that use nature, and can easily be returned to nature. Um, and so again, you know, he's just one of the people doing this. But, um, and again, this is all proof of concept at the moment. It is not reality. Um, for instance, on that one, uh, there is the problem of protecting the uh, mushroom wood from uh, moisture. And it's not at all uh, clear if that can be done using green technologies. So if you have to wrap it in plastic, basically, then it's not much better than anything else. Um, so, you know. Okay. Finally tonight, uh, New Horizons, our friend, uh, is our friend out there in the outer solar system is not yet done making history. 
having already brought us amazing and groundbreaking images of and data about the dwarf planet Pluto, it is still heading out of the solar system, but with a goal in mind. That is the target of a Kuiper Belt object known as 2014 MU69, uh, which the spacecraft will reach on January 1st, 2019. This will be the most distant journey in the history of space exploration, and we'll see the craft reach a billion miles beyond Pluto. It's really hard to imagine how far away that is. Um, it's really conceptually hard. I, you know, I just, it's, it's hard. Um, the KBO target is actually 4 billion miles away from the Earth. Um, we're talking humongous distances. Uh, and so back on July 17th, the object passed in front of a star um, out in the uh, universe sort of behind it. And uh, so telescopes were deployed by the New Horizons team uh, back in Patagonia again um, in a totally different fashion uh, back in Patagonia, Argentina. And so they were lucky, lucky enough to catch this occultation, which basically it passed in front of this uh, star. The star was bright enough that we could actually see it as a shadow in front of that star, which is just also madness. <laughs> and so this gave them important data that will inform the plans for the spacecraft's trajectory and to help them better understand the size, shape, orbit, and environment around MU69. And so based on these new observations, the NASA researchers suspect the, that the body may even be, uh, may be in either an extreme prolate spheroid, uh, think a long skinny potato, or even a binary pair. And so it could be two bodies orbiting very closely or even touching in what is called a contact binary. And so they now estimate uh, that the KBO is a mere 20 miles or less long if a single object and around 9 to 12 miles if each is, if it's two in a binary, in a binary. This new finding is simply spectacular. The shape of MU69 is truly provocative and could mean another first for New Horizons going to a binary object in the Kuiper Belt, said Alan Stern, mission, mission principal investigator from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. I could not be happier with the occultation results, which promise a scientific bonanza for the flyby. Um, and so this is just so exciting. Um, they used the Hubble and the uh, European Space Agency's Gaia satellite to pinpoint where the uh, shadow would fall. And then they were able to go down there to Patagonia. And um, so uh, Mark Bui, the New Horizons co-investigator, uh, notes that these exciting and puzzling results have already been key for our mission planning, but also add to the mysteries surrounding this target leading into the New Horizons encounter with MU69, now less than 17 months away. Well, of course, now it's 12 months away. All right. So that is us for tonight, and I will be back next week with more. Uh, have a great night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.